Hi, everyone. Welcome to The AHO Way, a podcast presented by the faculty and trainees at the University of Arizona Internal Medicine Residency Program at South Campus. Each episode, we will delve into the evidence-based, patient-centered practice of ambulatory medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Indu Partha, a board-certified general internist with a passion for primary care and medical education. I'm so excited to welcome one of my general internal medicine colleagues to the show today. Dr. Joy Bulger-Beck is a University of Arizona College of Medicine class of 2009 graduate and completed her residency at UCLA Olive View Medical Center. Having a special interest in women's health, she is a certified menopause practitioner by the North American Menopause Society. She has been practicing primary care internal medicine and menopause management for patients in Southern California for the last decade and is thrilled to return to the Old Pueblo and the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Tucson as an assistant clinical professor. I was so excited when you joined our division, Joy, and know you as a fantastic primary care physician. When you're not busy doctoring, how do you like to spend your time? Thank you, I'm glad to be a part of the division. Well, when not seeing patients or charting, you can usually find me with my family, either on a bike or a hike or boating on our uh, boat in, on a lake. When alone time comes around, which is not often, I do love to do yoga or dive into a good non-medical book or movie. And we just saw the movie Just Mercy, which was incredible. Oh, fantastic. Yes, I have the book on my nightstand. I will definitely get to it. Well, thank you so much again for joining us. Um, let's get started. I loved your nod to the Wizard of Oz with your uh, title for this uh, podcast. So let's learn a little bit more about hot flashes, insomnia, and dryness. Oh my. So Dr. Beck, can you start us off by reviewing what your learning objectives are for today? Of course. And first, before I dive into that, I want to give a shout out to my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Juliana Kling with the Mayo Clinic, who's also a U of A College of Medicine Tucson graduate. Uh, when I was looking for more education on how to help my patients improve their quality, quality of life with menopause symptoms, she recommended the North American Menopause Society to me. And the, the North American Menopause Society, which I'll refer to as NAMS, is a great resource for everything menopause, from clinical guidelines, summaries to patient education. They also have a Menopro app that you can use, and you can find them at menopause.org. So our, our learning objectives for today are gonna to be to provide menopause management considerations for the internist based on current evidence since the Women's Health Initiative, specifically revolving around menopausal hormone therapy, otherwise known as MHT. And we'll also address and review management of the following menopause-related symptoms, hot flashes, sleep disturbances, and genitourinary syndrome. Terrific. Well, why don't we get started with a case? Um, we have a 52-year-old female whose last menstrual period was three months ago, and she has reported irregular menses for the last one year and states she cannot sleep due to hot flashes for the last six months. She's been finding uh, herself having trouble concentrating at work due to three to four hot flashes during the daytime, and she has increased her exercise. She has been feeling extremely anxious and depressed over the last one month and has noticed a decreased sex drive over the last two to three months. Her past medical history is negative for obesity, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, or cancer. She is a non-smoker, and she is not taking any medications currently. So what would we advise to this patient? Choice A, advise crank up the AC. 
Choice B, advise black cohosh root preparations. Choice C, advise paroxetine. Or D, advise menopausal hormone therapy. Hopefully by the end of this, we'll have a clear answer. Terrific, yep, I hope so as well. And I am definitely old enough uh, when you mentioned menopausal hormone therapy uh, to remember when everyone was prescribed hormones and then when things suddenly took a 180 after the Women's Health Initiative findings were released, suddenly everyone's hormones prescriptions were discontinued cold turkey. Uh, talk about hot flashes and dryness, oh my. What in the world was that all about? Good question. So if you remember the Women's Health Initiative published in 2002, and there were 161,809 women in the study, ages between 50 and 79 years old, large study across 40 clinical centers. They were given conjugated equine estrogen and medroxyprogesterone acetate. And the concern is that in this very large multi-centered study, there was an increased risk shown of breast cancer, coronary heart disease and stroke, and PE in these women. Um, yes, I remember it really put the brakes on hormonal therapy and menopause, didn't it? Yes, it did. And we'll dive into why newer studies along with subgroup analyses of the Women's Health Initiative have helped our thought process change over time. That would be really helpful and informative. Um, I know this might be a basic question, but maybe could you please uh, first start clarifying what exactly is meant by the terms perimenopause, menopause versus early menopause? Great question. So perimenopause is that transitional period from reproductive years into menopause. It's usually associated with some symptoms, some irregular menses, hot flashes, sleep disturbances. The big highlighting characteristic that a woman's perimenopausal is there's usually some sort of change in their menstrual cycles with any of those associated symptoms. And it can start a few years prior to menopause. Some women continue to experience those symptoms that start at that time for five to ten years or more. Menopause, on the other hand, is when menses actually stops and it's confirmed once there's been 12 months of no menses. And but after that point in time, the woman's considered postmenopausal. The average age of menopause is 51 and it usually occurs between 45 and 55. There can be premature or early menopause. Premature is prior to the age of 40. Early menopause is any time that the woman has uh, been stopped having menses for a reason other than natural, such as having uh, their ovaries removed by surgery. Early menopause is known to be associated with adverse long-term health consequences, such as increased overall mortality, coronary heart disease, dementia, Parkinsonism, osteoporosis, mood disorders, and sexual dysfunction. So menopausal hormone therapy is definitely recommended at least until the age the natural age of menopause, unless there's some big contraindication to that. That makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate that explanation. I think sometimes those uh, terms are used uh, probably a bit interchangeably and probably a bit incorrectly. So let's get into the actual discussion of hormones, um, starting with bioidentical hormones. I've had patients ask me uh, for bioidentical menopause therapy. Can you explain a little bit what they actually are referring to and what's your take on this uh, form of therapy? Yeah, bioidenticals are a very hot topic online and in the media. So what the term actually means is just that the 
medication is the same chemical and molecular structure as hormones that are naturally produced in the body. But it's become a bit of a marketing term based on custom compounded uh, supplements produced based on salivary and blood levels, which are not found to be reliable. And these custom compounded hormone preparations are not FDA approved. We, there could be potential harm and unknown risks from custom compounded bioidentical hormones as we don't know if the active ingredients are absorbed appropriately or if these custom compounded supplements, they're often in pellets or creams. We don't know if they can provide predictable levels in blood or tissue. So the North American Menopause Society supports the actions of the U.S. Congress, FDA, and other scientific organizations that have warned about the potential harm and unknown risks from these custom compounded bioidentical hormones. Should we tell our patients not to use bioidentical hormones and just go with those that are commercially available? Well, actually, if a patient does specifically want to use bioidentical hormones, there are FDA-approved available bioidentical hormones, such as transdermal estradiol and oral micronized progesterone are, are both considered bioidentical, meaning the same chemical and molecular structure to what the ovaries produced. It's very important to note, estrogen is the most effective treatment for vasomotor symptoms, reporting greater than 90% reduction in vasomotor symptoms on causal on women with estrogen. You only really need to use the lowest effective dose, and you do want to both have and document a good risk-benefit discussion with your patients about hormonal therapy. Also important to note, if you use estrogen to help reduce the vasomotor symptoms, you do need to give progesterone if the patient's uterus is present. You must add progesterone to systemic estrogen to prevent endometrial hyperplasia. I like to use micronized progesterone, 100 milligrams every day, but I, you, you can also use 200 milligrams daily for 12 days out of the month if you prefer that option. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So it sounds like hormone therapy isn't quite as scary as people used to think it is. Um, but are there still certain uh, patients who you would counsel uh, to avoid starting on hormone therapy? I do make sure to counsel my patients and look at, take a good history, look at their past medical history and their family history their social history, if they smoke or not, to help kind of come up with a good risk-benefit discussion for them. I try to counsel patients to try alternatives first, especially if they, you know, I would avoid hormone therapy if they have known personal history of coronary artery disease, TIAs, strokes, DVTs, or pulmonary embolisms, breast cancer, active liver disease, or high-risk endometrial cancers, or I really consider alternatives if the woman has a known family history of any of these things. I'm very cautious to counsel my patients on trying to do risk reduction if they are smoking, to quit smoking, to get their uncontrolled hypertension, hyperlipidemia, or diabetes under control prior to trying uh, menopausal hormone therapy and, and try alternatives first until they can get those risks under better control. Okay. So it sounds like you really do have a lot of discussion and counseling with your patients. Um, but can you kind of review what has exactly changed since the Women's Health Initiative came out to um, make providers feel more comfortable to going back to prescribing uh, menopausal hormone therapy again? Yes. Well, as I mentioned above, estrogen is the most effective treatment at reducing hot flashes. 
for vasomotor symptoms with menopause. And one of our main thoughts on hormones that's changed is the timing hypothesis, which is the idea that the effects of menopausal hormone therapy and the risk of cardiovascular disease are really thought to vary depending on the woman's age and time since menopause when she starts hormones. Data shows that less cardiovascular risk exists in women who initiate menopausal hormone therapy when they're younger than 60 and or within 10 years of menopause onset. This was found in both a subgroup analysis of the Women's Health Initiative, looking specifically at the 50 to 59-year-old women in that study, where there was a protective effect in the estrogen group in regards to myocardial infarction, cardiovascular disease, and death. It's also been shown in a a more recent study, the ELITE trial, that looked at 643 women, looking at their progression of atherosclerosis measured by their carotid uh, intima media thickness. And it found that there was a difference in the time of initiation of menopausal hormone therapy. There was a benefit for cardiovascular risk when initiated less than six years past menopause, but not a benefit when initiated greater than 10 years past menopause. There was also a more recent KEEPS trial looking at healthy women between the ages of 42 and 59 within three years of menopause and giving them menopausal hormone therapy. And that showed no statistically significant differences in the rates of breast cancer, endometrial, myocardial infarctions, TIAs, strokes, or venous thromboembolism between placebo. So uh, in, in this generally healthy, younger population, we're really not seeing the cardiovascular disease risks that we were concerned about. Got it. Um, so it, it does look like, I mean, once people are prescribing uh, menopausal hormone therapy, a lot of uh, prescribers are, um, are using, and maybe per patient preference, using estrogen patches for treatment. Uh, is there a benefit for this, or what are your thoughts on that? Right, yeah. There has been a question of possible lower thrombosis risk in the transdermal or non-oral versions of estrogen available. This is all just based on observational data but the use of transdermal estrogen appears to be associated with a lower venous thromboembolic and stroke risks. Non-oral estrogen also has the advantages in studies of showing that there can be stable hormone concentrations in the blood, and it avoids a first-pass hepatic effect, showing no increase in triglycerides, C-reactive protein, or increase in sex homerin binding globulin, and a very little effect on blood pressure. So I think that's why that's sort of become a favored version of estrogen that's given for hormone therapy. Got it. That makes sense. And I know you mentioned sort of VTE risk and stroke risk. Um, I think another one of the other reasons primary care providers have been hesitant about prescribing hormones is because of the concern for increased breast cancer risk. Um, with menopausal hormone therapy. Are we uh, needlessly worried? Well, there is, you know, a concern and there is evidence for a small but increased risk in breast cancer to date. In the Women's Health Initiative from the, for the 50 to 59-year-old age group, the combined estrogen and progesterone compared to placebo showed about six more cases of breast cancer per 10,000. So a small but increased risk. And, and in a patient who otherwise has a pretty strong risk of breast cancer, it's very important that that counseling is performed and the patient's aware of this. 
Got it. And I know there was also um, a Lancet article that you had shared, uh, which was a meta-analysis published in August of uh, 2019 that suggested a significant um, increased incidence of breast cancer. um, Right. Study design um, suggested an association, not a causation. You're absolutely right. Most of the studies looked at in this article in Lancet in last year uh, showed very different hormone preparations than what's generally used now. So while there, it did, you, you can't assume there's a link between an increased risk in breast cancer and menopausal hormone therapy from that study, but not necessarily uh, the, to the degree that was shown in that study. Got it. And then one interesting thing um, that were I noticed was that the obesity group that was not on menopausal hormone therapy also had a similar absolute risk for breast cancer um, as compared to the non-obese group that was on estrogen. Yes, that was very interesting. And it just goes to show it's always important to consider that there's many potential risks for breast cancer, obesity being one of them, and keep that perspective when counseling our patients. Okay, so you're kind of convincing me that um, menopausal hormone therapy might not be uh, new scary territory, and hopefully our listeners are also um, learning and feeling more comfortable. So um, if I've counseled my patient on the risks, um, but her vasomotor symptoms are significant, and she just wants to go ahead and start hormone therapy, um, I think another obstacle is just knowing where do, where do I start? What's a starting dose? Right. And that's, you know, you, you nailed that point that quality of life is important. And that's part of the benefit, you know, that, that this woman needs to consider when considering the risks. I usually like to start estradiol 0.025 to 0.05 milligrams per day transdermal one to two times a week. And then that progesterone 100 milligrams oral daily for ease. Okay. And is there a certain um, time period you would then, when do you check back with your patient? I usually check in to see how their symptoms are improving over the next two to three months to see if I need to down, if we need to up titrate the dose or if I started them out on a higher dose because their symptoms were pretty severe to see if they want to try a little bit lower dose. And then I I usually counsel them and see them once a year, at least once they're stable and symptoms well controlled on the medication to see if they want to continue, if they, you know, make sure they're up to date on all their health screenings and, and see where they are in their hormone therapy journey. Terrific. Well, that sounds pretty straightforward. Um, But what non-hormonal options can you offer your patient if she prefers to avoid the potential risks of uh, menopausal hormone therapy that we've discussed and reviewed above, or um, maybe she just isn't an appropriate candidate for hormone therapy. Sure. Important to note, you know, the non-medication options for hot flashes that became very popularly publicized uh, when the Women's Health Initiative came out haven't been shown to show any evidence of benefit in any randomized controlled t- trials, but some things that certainly don't hurt to try, but, but aren't necessarily evidence-based would be exercise and weight loss, avoiding a lot of alcohol or spicy foods, trying cool compresses or fans, although not at all shown in evidence to be beneficial for the vasomotor symptoms, 
There is some evidence for cognitive behavioral therapy and clinical hypnosis for helping with hot flashes if patients want to try non-medication. Hmm. There's also non-hormonal medication options, the SSRIs and SNRIs, which have been shown in large randomized controlled trials to show significant reductions in vasomotor symptoms. The SNRIs venlafaxine and desvenlafaxine have been shown to reduce hot flashes in some studies by up to 65%. And the SSRIs, specifically escitalopram, sertraline, citalopram, fluoxetine, and paroxetine have been shown to reduce vasomotor symptoms by up to 50% in studies. There's also some that use gabapentin or pregabalin. Uh, there's only three trials showing some evidence for this, not as much data available, and uh, oxybutynin, although that one's not used as commonly. So some evidence, small evidence for those as well. So I've heard about some uh, CIRMs or selective estrogen receptor modular, modulators being used for hot flashes. Um, I was kind of intrigued about that. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes. So it's interesting because we usually think of CIRMs like tamoxifen and raloxifene, which have side effects of hot flashes, but there is a relatively new FDA approved called basidoxifene and conjugated equine estrogen, brand name is Duovi, uh, which shows estrogen agonistic effects on bone and liver and antagonistic effects on the breast and uterus. It's been shown to improve bone density, vaginal atrophy, and reduce hot flashes without an increase in endometrial hyperplasia. The only thing is it hasn't really been studied yet for breast cancer prevention, and because it's fairly new, we don't have a lot of long-term safety data yet. Got it. So way back when, um, I used to have quite a few uh, women who would ask me about the use of testosterone in menopausal management. Um, and I would say specifically uh, in relationship to perhaps a decreased libido um, and a dissatisfaction with their um, sexual intimacy with their partner. Um, is there a role for testosterone in menopause management? Great question. A lot of women are taking testosterone um, and or asking about this. And so, so far results from large observational studies generally have found no association between androgen level in women and overall female sexual function. It appears that physical and psychological factors seem to be more significant predictors of distressing sexual problems in women. But there is a condition called hypoactive sexual desire disorder in the DSM-4, which is the persistent or recurrent deficiency or absence of sexual fantasies and desire for sexual activity with a marked distress or interpersonal difficulty not otherwise accounted for by another general medical or psychiatric condition. And in 2019, there was a global consensus position statement endorsed by numerous menopause and endocrine societies stating that the only evidence-based indication for testosterone therapy for women in menopause is, the, is for the treatment of this hypoactive sexual desire disorder. And there's data supporting that a moderate therapeutic effect can occur in postmenopausal women treated with testosterone that are diagnosed with that disorder. However, it's important to note that treatment should only achieve blood concentrations of testosterone that would approximate a woman's premenopausal physiological concentrations of testosterone, which is usually only about a tenth of a men's usual dose. 
And the panel does recommend against use of custom compounded formulation or pellets, which can result in supraphysiologic levels of testosterone, which we know has detrimental side effects. Got it. So I know you've covered the vasomotor um, symptoms related to menopause. You were discussing some of the um, sexual dysfunction. Um, many of my peri and postmenopausal post excuse me, patients are struggling with sleep um, or the lack thereof. Any <laughs> suggestions on how to approach this? Yes, that's true. In a 2007 survey, about half of midlife women report sleep problems and peri and postmenopausal women are twice as likely to use medication sleep aids. So we think that the sleep problems in menopause at this point are multifactorial in terms of there's midlife stressors going on. There's also a higher incidence in mood disorders during this time of life. There's vasomotor symptoms from the, you know, the hot flashes during menopause affecting the sleep problems, along with physiological changes like frequent urination that can start up around this time. So the poor sleep, however, likely has a cascading effect on mood, libido, and overall health. So it's really important for us to address these sleep problems. There's insufficient evidence at this point to recommend menopausal hormone therapy specifically just for sleep. Okay. unless there's vasomotor symptoms involved. Uh, so we really want to look at the root cause. If there are hot flashes that are severe vasomotor symptoms, then we'll treat them with menopausal hormone therapy if the patient's an appropriate candidate. If they have urinary symptoms, we want to consider overactive bladder management as we normally would. We want to look at, are they having depression, anxiety, severe stress? We want to address that and consider cognitive behavioral therapy or medical management if needed. And we want to always remember to screen for sleep disorders like obstructive sleep apnea and restless leg syndrome that could be present. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think, as you mentioned, very multifactorial for a lot of women at uh, this particular stage of life. Um, how about the approach to uh, treatment for women who complain of more localized symptoms, um, for instance, only uh, complaining of vaginal discomfort or pain with intercourse? Very good thing to bring up. So you're right, about 57% of postmenopausal women have vulval vaginal dryness, and only 20% of those women, or, I'm sorry, 20 to 25% of those women seek medical attention for these problems. So, uh, you know, it's, it's very important that this gets addressed. There's a new term called genital urinary syndrome, which includes vulval vaginal atrophy, dryness, sexual dysfunction, and urinary symptoms. And uh, we can get into the treatment of genital urinary syndrome. Yeah, that would be great. I think, um, you know, I'm surprised to hear you mention how few women seek medical attention for these problems. Um, I can imagine it's probably a bit uncomfortable, perhaps embarrassing for some women to, to discuss these problems. So perhaps some of the onus is on us as primary care physicians to ask women about it and broach the topic ourselves. And then yes, if we've broached it, it would be great to then be able to offer them some treatment. Where do you go from here? Right, and so usually there's a lot of different options. Usually the first line approach is either lubricants or moisturizers to help treat genital urinary syndrome. So lubricants are different from moisturizers, which I did not realize uh, initially. Lubricants are just temporary and they're used at the time of sex. They just last a few hours to help make uh, sexual uh, 
sexual experiences more comfortable. So they can be either water-based or silicone-based. The water-based tend to be stickier, but they're latex compatible. The silicone-based can be more slippery and not sticky, but you actually have to use soap to remove them. So there is a difference even in the lubricants available commercially. There's also moisturizers. So moisturizers, on the other hand, maintain hydration, and they can last two to three days. So they don't have to be used as often, and they last a little bit longer. There's a lot of those available commercially as well. There's the uh, kind of mainstay of treatment for genital urinary syndrome is topical vaginal estrogen. It's important to note topical vaginal estrogens generally a very low systemic amount that gets absorbed. So it does not need opposing progesterone. Topical vaginal estrogen improves vaginitis, vaginal atrophy, urinary incontinence, both stress and urge and recurrent UTI it can help prevent that. So it, it, it actually changes the architecture of the vagina by lowering vaginal pH, thickening an epithelium, and improving rugae, elasticity, and secretions. Got it. This can, become, this can be available both in creams, rings, and tablets. Okay. And I have to ask you about this treatment called Mona Lisa that I have seen ads for. What exactly is it and what is the reason these um, medications and procedures always have to be named after women? Um, I'm not sure you have an answer for that. We'd have to ask our marketing colleagues, but um, what, it, what is the Mona Lisa treatment? So the Mona Lisa is also known as the vaginal fractional, fractional CO2 laser for vaginal atrophy. So it's a laser treatment that stimulates new collagen synthesis and can restore permeability of connective tissue. So making that architectural reversal sort of, of vaginal atrophy to, to help prevent that change. There's ongoing clinical trials still, um, so we don't have a lot of long-term data, but we're anticipating that the, that, that the data from those will help clarify the risks and benefits of this treatment. Well, I will look forward to getting some updates from you. Now, what if our patient has a history of estrogen-dependent cancers? Um, shouldn't we just avoid any estrogen at all, even topically? It's true, especially in high-grade endometrial cancers or estrogen-dependent breast cancers. There, it, there can be some small systemic absorption with the topical vaginal estrogen. So it's always important to collaborate with our oncology colleagues and ensure that the benefit would outweigh the risk uh, before considering topical estrogen in a patient with this history. There are other non-estrogen treatments considered to be safe with a history of endometrial and estrogen-dependent cancers, which include the vaginal DHA suppository that's available called prasterone, um, or there's also a serum called ozpemaphine uh, that, that's shown some promising benefit for vaginal dryness, vaginal pH, and vaginal maturation. In a large 52-week extension of the study, there were no increased cases of DBT or endometrial hyperplasia with this serum, and it had a favorable effect on bone density. The downside is 8% of women on this serum reported hot flashes. So you trade one side effect for another. So that's, that's just important to note. Um, it, it did show an inhibitory breast effect on breast tissue in animal models, but it's not yet been studied in, in breast cancer survivors in the United States. The FDA did put a warning on this for endometrial cancer and DVT as well, even though that wasn't shown in the large extension study. 
Well, this has been so very helpful, Dr. Beck. I think our listeners are going to feel much more comfortable about counseling and treating their patients who come in to discuss menopausal concerns into the clinic. Um, I'd love it if you could close our discussion today with some take-home bullet points. Yeah, so the bullet points would be that for intolerable vasomotor symptoms, hormone therapy is the most effective. You do need to make sure that the benefits weigh the risk for many symptomatic women. And in general, they do outweigh the risk for the majority of women before the age of 60 or within 10 years of menopause starting on those hormones. It does require a risk-benefit discussion with the patient and to reevaluate regularly with the patient to ensure benefits are still likely outweighing any, any potential risks. Early menopause, either by surgery or with primary ovarian insufficiency prior to the age of 40, should, a woman should be on menopausal hormone therapy at least until the natural age of menopause. For sleep disturbances that are common in menopause, let's make sure to address those and if vasomotor symptoms are involved, hormones may benefit, but otherwise, let's delve into the sleep issues, try to find the root cause, and try to help treat that sleep problem. Genitourinary syndrome includes multiple conditions, and vaginal estrogen is of greatest benefit, but there are alternatives if patient isn't a great candidate, so make sure to look into those. So our 52-year-old female that we opened up with who had the last menstrual period three months ago, who was having difficulty sleeping, concentrating, hot flashes, some mood changes, decreased libido, with a pretty uh, benign past medical history, non-smoker. I'm going to take a stab at this, and sure, we could have her turn up the air conditioning. Um, Perhaps the paroxetine would be helpful for some of the hot flashes, as you mentioned, SSRIs. as a possible uh, use for that. But it seems for this patient, um, I'm gonna say D, advise menopausal hormone therapy. Ding, 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 you're the winner. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for helping me out today, Joy. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, it was a pleasure being here. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. We are grateful for your support and hope you will subscribe to our podcast and leave a review so that others can find us. Please share your uh, thoughts and please share our podcast with a friend and colleague. We look forward to you joining us next time here on the AHO Way, where primary care is primary. This podcast episode was produced by Ajay Partha.